So you ever wonder what kind of people get into MIT? Or what they do after they graduate? Welcome to this week's episode of Unlimited, also known as Bila Hudud. We're brought to you by the MIT Arab Alumni Association. Here we talk about the different paths Arab students took to get to MIT while they were students and after graduation. What we hope to uncover is that these paths, quite like the people who took them, are unlimited. I'm your host, Dana Dabusi, class of 2020, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Unlimited. Hello, Sahla, and welcome to this week's episode of Unlimited. To start off our Pi series, we're joined by Arin Bahur, our co-host and volunteer of the MIT Arab Alumni Association. Arin graduated in 2016 with a degree in chemical engineering. She is a passionate Palestinian and was a great mentor to me while I was a student. So I hope the advice that she shares today will be useful to you if you're an incoming student or thinking about applying. So this series is for you. This may uncover some experiences on campus that you didn't even know existed. So without further ado, here's Arin. Welcome to the episode, Arin. Thank you, Dana. I have to say I'm I'm a little bit more nervous being on this side of the seat. So, <laughs> but thanks for having me. We had a great time last time. I'm sure it'll be just as fun hearing your story. I don't doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> So, Arin, uh, you have recently joined the MIT AAA as a volunteer and have played an instrumental role in getting this podcast up and running. So, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with the MIT AAA uh, and what you're hoping for in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad to be a volunteer on the board. Thanks to you, really. I think we just had a conversation and I was sold right away. So it was your convincing efforts. But I recently, especially in the pandemic, I started to feel that I was a little more removed from the MIT community and it wasn't something I was happy about. I was always or tried to always be very active on campus and I missed that feeling. So I wanted to reach out to just the different organizations that have a presence and have events where I can help. And the AAA or the Arab Alum Association was the perfect place because it's both engagement with MIT, keeping that connection, but still keeping that connection with the Arab world that I also miss so much. So yeah, that's why I chose to join. And then the reason I'm a volunteer and not fully on board is because I choose to do way too many things with my life. So I wanted to make sure that I'm not biting more than I can chew, but it's been such a great uh, opportunity. So basically so far, what I've been working on is this podcast with you. Initially, I was a little bit more behind the scenes, so just thinking about ideas and strategy, and now I'm on the mic as a guest today and hopefully as a co-host moving forward. And I'm so excited for that going forward, and especially with the Pi series. So this is our first edition of the Pi series, uh, so no pressure. And we're hoping to get a pretty good look at what it's like to be a student uh, more recently, was MIT always on your radar or was it something unexpected? For me, it was a little bit unexpected. I think MIT was just one of these places that were always around, but you did not realize until somebody pointed it out. So I didn't know much about MIT until I was maybe in high school. I want to say ninth or 10th grade. And then one of my best friend's brother got into MIT 
and you know it was a big mm. deal and I was like oh cool and I had heard the name but I did not know how prestigious of a school it was how great research comes out of there just how hard it is to get in all these different things so I started learning more about it and then it, it just started popping out you watch movies and suddenly you know it's MIT campus or the kid went to MIT I just started realizing that it was always present I just never really knew what it was and maybe it didn't catch my attention it became somewhat of a goal somewhat of a bet I think my friend and I at that point he was like oh you should definitely apply you'll get in and I'm like come on and it kind of started that way you know and then it became somewhat of a challenge you know can I get in? Do I want to get in? Do I want to go? I always knew I wanted to study in the States. So that was determined. I just never knew where. I ended up applying early, actually. So I went from not knowing to I want to know as soon as possible. So I applied early admission and I got in early, which was December 17th. I remember the day. Um, Yeah, December 17th. What year would have that been? 2011? I almost burned the house down. I still remember that specific moment, just being on my desk, seeing it, screaming and then knocking over the the heater and going to my dad's office to let him know I got in. That was exactly the order of events. (laughs) No, that's incredible. And I, you know, going from not knowing about something and uh, trying your best to get in and and then being so excited when when you succeed is is a great indicator of of who you are, Adi. And I think (laughs) you've always been someone who, who goes after things. And so I want to talk a little bit about your time at MIT and, and the different things you were a part of while you were there. You know, once the, the excitement subsided a bit and and you got to campus, what, what was your first uh, impression? So, oh boy, traveling through time a little bit. Um, I had never been to Cambridge or Boston or Massachusetts before coming in for orientation. I didn't uh, have the chance to do a CPW, which is Campus Preview Weekend, because that was uh, during our IB exams. And it was also kind of a three-day trip, Mm. but not worth it making the trip from Palestine all the way here. So I had been to the States many times. My grandparents live in Ohio, but never to the East Coast, never to Boston. So I signed up somewhat blindly. Like when I think about it now, it's crazy how we do that. We get so excited about the opportunity and the, the institution and nothing else kind of matters at that point. So I love the city. I know when I landed in Boston, seeing water everywhere, I was like, I'm in the right place. This is this is the city for me. There's a river, there's an ocean. I'm in the middle. I'm happy. I had uh, looked on Google Earth. I looked at the campus that way. I literally went on Google Earth and was like looking at all the streets and the dorms and trying to figure out where we're going. So in the Uber to my dorm, I was like, oh, this is this dorm and this is that dorm. And my dad is just looking at me like, she's insane. How much time did she spend memorizing the street? I did love the campus. I think it was a bit overwhelming at the beginning. One of my regrets is not attending international orientation. So because I applied early Mm -hmm. at the time, I think it has changed since. But at the time, you could only apply early if you were an American citizen. And so because I got in early for them, I was part of the local students. I wasn't an international student, even though everything about me is international, except that I carry another passport. So that I think that was overwhelming because I felt like I got in, all the international students had been there for a week or two. They already all knew each other. And I was just like, oh man, that was a bad idea. I should have, should have come in earlier. But I still love the campus. I did, I forget the acronym for these programs, but there was a pre-orientation program that you could do. So I did the um, entrepreneurship one. F-pop. Yeah, exactly. So I did the entrepreneurship one where we kind of had some workshops about that and they took us different places in the city. I remember they took us to Improv Asylum in the North End to watch an improv show. They took us to Fanwell Hall and just showed us around the city. It was like a smaller group of people. So I immediately became more comfortable 
Um, and then orientation was fantastic. I actually met a few of my, like who will then become my best friends for the four years of college. And, and I still am in touch with them today during that week, during orientation. We all lived wow. in the same dorm. We weren't in the same orientation group. I don't know how we met, but we were all in the same dorm and, and one of us knew somebody else. I don't know how it happened, but I kind of met my crew early on. And um, I think I was very lucky in that sense. So I don't know. That was a very roundabout way to say it was a great first impression. I was overwhelmed. It's scary at the beginning and I'm not somebody who gets scared easily, but it's definitely overwhelming the first few hours on campus. And the moment your parents leave, that's heartbreaking. But it goes away pretty quickly. The excitement comes and takes that that overwhelmed feeling very quickly. You're right. Orientation is a world of its own. And every year after freshman year, I would look upon the freshmen who were coming in and just uh, see the excitement in their eyes and how how excited they are to meet new people and finally find, I would say, their tribe uh, to some extent. Yeah. And you can detect them on campus. You can tell the freshmen yeah. quickly because there's just this, an energy that you have at that stage that unfortunately does not stick with you <laughs> later on. <laughs> not when you get too busy. Different sort of uh, glow at that point in time. <laughs> <laughs> That's an achievement glow from all the work you've been there doing. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's been great talking about uh, orientation, but let's, let's talk a bit more about what MIT was like after settling in, after... Uh, getting to know people, did you have difficulty choosing your major or did you know from the beginning that you wanted to be a chemical engineer? Let's walk us through that a oh little. Oh boy, then asking the hard questions. Uh, I'll start from, let's start from the, the end. Did I have difficulty choosing my major? Yes, absolutely. It was, I didn't go into MIT knowing what I wanted to do. I chose MIT because I wanted engineering. I wanted a research-focused institution uh, I wanted to be in a city, but I did not know what I wanted to do for sure. And I talked to my advisor. I went through the, I knew it was engineering. So I just eliminated everything else. And maybe that was a mistake, honestly. Like that was a lesson learned. If I am to go back and do it again, maybe I won't so quickly eliminate any non-engineering majors. But at that time, that's just in my head. I knew that that's what I wanted. Um, so I just listed all the engineering majors on a paper and I started going through them. And it was a process of elimination. I started literally crossing out the ones that I definitely knew I didn't want to do. And then I was looking at where people ended up after. So I was looking at all those kind of stories from the field and alums to see where, what industries did people end up in if they did mechanical engineering, if they did chemical, if, whatever it mm -hmm. may have been. And then I narrowed it down, I think, to three majors. It was mechanical, chemical, and I think um, aero astro, because those were the three that were chemical and aero astro are pretty specific if you think about it, but then you see a lot of people graduate and go elsewhere. And to me, it was a matter of finding what will be the least limiting major. And that's kind of how I was making my decision. And chemical engineering stood out the most to me because I was always, I enjoyed chemistry a lot. Now at the time, I did not know how little chemistry there will be in chemical engineering. It was predominantly physics. Yeah. I would say that was my experience. It was very heavily physics, but I did love chemistry and chemistry was in the name. So it kind of just caught my eye. So I went to my advisor and I was like, I'm not sure. I it kind of, I looked at the list. I think this one makes sense. And I remember so distinctly, she goes, are you sure? And I was like, what, what do you mean? She's like, well, it's one of the more kind of robust curriculums. There's not a lot of flexibility in what classes you can take. Things are either mm -hmm. offered in spring or offered in fall. It's pretty intense. Every major at MIT is pretty intense. 
But it turned out that chemical engineering was notorious for some extra intensity. And 18-year-old me, and I'm not saying that current me is any different, was like, excuse me, is she saying I can't do it? That's the monologue in my head. Is this implying that this is too hard? Because now you just made me really want to do it. So believe it or not, that was a huge factor in my decision. I don't know if I'm proud of that, but it was. I I can always change. And it just seemed like a challenge. And I've always been attracted to challenges and hard problems. So I'm like, cool. Okay. That's what we're going to do. I think my advisor was slightly disappointed, maybe mortified that that's how I made my decision. I don't know. Um, She was fantastic, but I think I shocked her in that moment. So I did it. I I enjoyed the intro class. So 1010, the the intro to chemical engineering, it's a Mm -hmm. tough class, but I really enjoyed it. So I was like, okay, I may have not made the wrong decision here. I think it took me halfway through my chemical engineering career, I guess. So two, (laughs) two years in, I was like, actually, this is this is no longer exciting for me. And not in the way where I wasn't enjoying the classes. I was, I really was. But it's the time where you start looking for internships and jobs and research opportunities. And I started to feel that even though I enjoy what I'm learning in class, I'm not itching to apply it exactly as it is outside of class. Mm. But I was already halfway through. And again, my stubborn self, I'm not going to quit now, 50% through. (laughs) So I just tried to include other things that balanced out where I'm applying my skills. And that goes to what my experience was like on campus. So I became more involved in the ASO, the Arab Student Organization in Palestine at MIT, another cultural student organization. I did the Model UN conference for one of the years. So I tried to just start doing a lot of activities and things that I know that I will enjoy. And they're not necessarily educational. They're not necessarily going on my degree, but that's okay. They are the way that I am improving other skills, applying skills that I felt like I wasn't really using in chemical engineering. Um, I started taking a lot more comparative media studies classes, which I ended up minoring in at the end of, it was just by coincidence, honestly, that I had enough classes for a minor, Mm. but I just enjoyed all of those. And that made it a much more balanced experience. And I think in retrospect, it's not that I never liked chemical engineering. I think it just took me like too long to realize that I need more of a balance in my choice of classes and activities. I can't just be all chemi. I needed variation. Yeah. And now I know that very well about myself. I know that I require variation to remain like challenged and entertained, whether that's in my job or in my life or in what I'm studying, what I'm reading, it doesn't matter. So I think that was a very valuable lesson for me. And I did graduate right. with a chemical engineering degree. So I guess by training, that's that's what I am. <laughs> right. Given how rigid that, uh, that schedule is, you can easily fall into the trap of just doing chemical engineering classes or if you're a biochemical engineer just doing chemical and biology classes and not really branching out and so it's great that you were able to find different interests uh, and different classes that that helped you balance that out yeah absolutely and honestly I'm being super honest here because I feel like it's easier to just be like oh I loved it everything was great it was I did love it everything was great But there were definitely some of these lessons learned. What would you do differently if you go back? So I think just a lot of people are too scared to think about those things because they variate from the path that you were expecting. And sometimes it's Mm. overwhelming to be like, oh, am I doing the right thing? Is this going to impact my grades, blah, blah, blah. And we get so just occupied by those noises that we don't really try to take action to to make things a bit more balanced. So I think that was definitely the biggest lesson I learned. And I, I love that you talk about balance in, in everything, especially in your life and even in your career after graduating. Your first job uh, allowed you to go on multiple trips. Um, and uh, 
was actually in the healthcare system. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your work was like and, and how it differed from maybe the chemical engineering that you were studying? Yeah, absolutely. So the job, I worked at a company called Athena Health. It's based in Watertown here in Massachusetts. Um, and they have an electronic medical record system. So basically when you go to the doctor, the computer software that they're using to put all your diagnosis and put in your orders that go to CVS, whatever it may be, that was kind of the, the bread and butter of what we do. There's a lot more, of course, like taking care of your bills and all that, but that's, I won't get into the technical details, mm-hmm. but I was working in implementation. So it was the, um, once somebody buys the software, it was how do we get them successfully on it and how do we mold it to meet their needs? How does it differ from chemical engineering in every possible way? Literally in every possible way. I did not use anything that I ever learned in a fluid dynamics class. But I will say that for me, chemical engineering, I am a chemical engineer by training, as we said, but I always say that I'm not a chemical engineering by trade. And for me, it was never about physics. It was never about chemistry. It was never about fluid dynamics. It was when I was in school. But once Mm -hmm. I got to my senior year, it became about processes, about optimization, about problem solving, about workflow design which are things, they are skills and they are like a mindset that's applicable to everything we do. Whether it's you're trying to figure out how to run your errands efficiently from your house to whatever the last destination is, or if it's implementing a medical record software, or now I'm in supply chain logistics, really there are skills that transcend chemical engineering. So for me, that's how I define it. It was building good processes. In school, it was building a chemical plant because that was our graduating project. But in life, it's it's building any any sort of process. So I will say that that was very applicable. Looking at the problem, dissecting it into smaller pieces, trying to get creative on how do you use the tools that you have and the resources that you have to meet a use case that might not be 100% what your product was designed to do. So those sort of problems really encourage me because, or like challenge me because it's, it's not always obvious. You're really trying sometimes to, what's the saying, fit a square peg in a round hole or whatever the saying is. Yeah. That's how it feels. And that's what I'm doing every day. But for some reason, to me, that's very intellectually stimulating because <laughs> it requires creativity, it requires some thinking, it requires some technical analysis. So it, it, again, back to that theme of variation. That's what I need. And that's what that offered. So, and then it included travel. We traveled to the clinics and the hospitals the first couple of weeks when they're going to start using our product to be there um, and offer like our presence and our support and all of that. So that's how I got to see a lot of the U.S. actually. I hadn't traveled so much inside the United States, but that job over three years, I think I hit half the state. So I think I've been to 25 or 27 at this point. Yeah. That's impressive. I enjoyed it. (laughs) So you talked a lot about problem solving and and, uh, using skills that maybe you didn't learn in your chemical engineering classes, but a lot of the references you made, the square peg in a round hole or having creative solutions, taking things step by step reminds me of a program that we both were a part of, uh, the Gordon Engineering Leadership Program, GEL program. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with that program? Uh, what you learned there and if that's actually helped you in your current job? Yeah, that's actually a great point. It helped me tremendously. So just to give everybody some, I guess, uh, context here. So the Gordon Engineering Leadership Program is a program at MIT that consists of several classes. Some are kind of theory where you learn some just good project management, entrepreneurship theory, et cetera. And some are more hands-on, which we call the, the labs, the engineering leadership labs. 
again, I signed up for uh, that balance, right? I wanted something that was more soft skills. Chemical engineering was a lot of hard skills. So I needed to make sure that I am practicing and also graduating with something that shows that I have soft skills if I wanted to go in consulting. So I remember when I was in gel, like there were moments where we would learn things or we would do certain labs that don't feel, don't feel the impact. You're like, ah, this is kind of repetitive or maybe a little bit easier than, you know, I would think the real world is like. But as now an employee, I see so clearly how they're doing it and how they're building those skills. And it's impeccable because even though we were doing it on a smaller scale, we would just have a hypothetical scenario. You would have um, some limited resources, like some cardboard and scissors and tape and whatever, and you have to build a robot or you have to build something that is able to move on its own. So the only thing we would use, what I think were balloons and rubber bands to make something that would get a little more forward. Yeah, exactly. So those were super fun. I love those. Right. And sometimes it was a little yeah. bit more theoretical where you have a bunch of guests and everybody's playing a different role and somebody's pretending, you know, to be the, the hard negotiator. Somebody is the maybe somebody sensitive to change and are not really liking your ideas. And you would have to have all these role play conversations with people. And I know that in the moment, a lot of people think it's a little bit awkward or a little bit overdone, but I cannot tell you how much that is applicable in real life. I'm having these conversations every single day in my job today. The whole idea of setting expectations, of working with limited resources, the importance of delivering, what was it, to spec on time is within budget, right? That was always our motto. Exactly. And I, I will say, when I reflect back at MIT, that was, I think, one of the things that I did or one of the, the programs I was a part of that is the most directly applied to my career. Mm-hmm. Everything else I definitely still used, right? And I learned a lot of skills from everything else I did, but they were all more subconscious or they were all more like you take what you learned and you mold it to fit what you need today. Gel is like a one-to-one relationship. Like I can see the skill that you taught me and I can see how I use it. It's it's yeah. fantastic. I, I love the program. And I actually stayed as a gel too. So I was a leader in the lab my senior year. And I was just last week um, a guest. So now I'm one of those guests that wow. for those uh, labs. It was pretty cool. They did a hybrid Zoom and in-person meeting. It was very impressive how they were able to pull that together. The pandemic has changed how everything is done. I remember when I was a part of the program, you were uh, a guest two two years in a row. Um, you were playing the person coming in from Hawaii with a laid back attitude, uh, and we had to manage expectations. and And it was really fun getting to know you uh, and uh, seeing you play that role As and knowing you. <laughs> so I will say. That love was really hard, and I was so when I did it as a as a junior, so as a first year jail student, I think the Hawaii person really got me. You know, that was the one I I was leading the lab, and I was feeling uncomfortable, and I was getting nervous. And that's of course when you know that you're really learning the lesson. Like anything that makes you uncomfortable is something that's pushing you to grow. So like you know that it is the point of this lab. But as soon as that mm. finished, I went to Leo, who's the director of the program, and I was like, when I graduate. If this lab is still happening, I want that role. So that's why I came back. You, you personally requested it. That's amazing. <laughs> now, I don't know if he remembered or not. I may have been randomly assigned that one, but I really did request it. I remember because I wanted to get my revenge. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I also wanted to talk about the other things that uh, you got to do while you were at MIT, um, namely the ASO, Palestine at MIT. Uh, what were those experiences like and 
are there any highlights uh, from your time uh, in those clubs? Yeah, of course. I mean, those were the way that I kept my connection with home. It's um, it's hard leaving home. It's hard being so far away from your parents and kind of your high school friends, the community you're used to. But as a Palestinian, honestly, I feel like there's that added pressure of, you know, there's always that you feel guilty. Like you grow up believing that like you are, you need to be present for us to continue to, you know, to fight our struggle, which is fair. And I agree with that. And that's very embedded in me. But I think that means that wherever you go, that is, is, that is a voice in the back of your head. Like if I'm not in Palestine and able to contribute in Palestine, I want to be contributing for Palestine elsewhere, mm. wherever I am. And because there's a big Palestinian community pretty much everywhere due to unfortunate circumstances, but that's the reality. The, I guess the benefit, or I don't want to even call it the benefit, the, the good side of that. Silver is, lining. Yeah, the silver lining. That's a great way to put it. It's not a benefit. It's a silver lining that there are a lot of Palestinians, you know, in Boston or at MIT or wherever you go, really. Palestine at MIT was definitely for me to remain connected to my community, to feel like I'm contributing to the Palestinian cause, to, to know Palestinians and to have that cultural presence and speak Arabic and make Mena'ish. And that was all a piece of home. And then the ASO is just a, a bigger umbrella of that. Being Palestinian also means being mm-hmm. Arab. And being part of the both cultural and educational events that we did was really important for me because I struggle a lot with the idea of brain drain or the phenomena that like a lot of people are talking about now. And I feel a lot of guilt being part of it. And I, I will be very honest. I do feel very bad being so far away from home and making the choice to remain in, in the U.S. for now, at least. I need to make sure that I still have contributions to that society, right? So at MIT, it was those clubs. And it was a fun time. That is the serious motivation. But there's also the non-so-serious one, which is it was a great time. We'd do dabke, <laughs> we would get Arabic food to campus. That's how I got to meet a lot of the wonderful Arabs at MIT, yourself included. So it's a great social um, aspect and it adds a lot of value to the MIT experience for sure. Yeah, I, I definitely look back on those times and think it, it was a great way for us to connect back with home and also do our part in bringing that piece of culture to campus to people who are not so familiar with it and, and kind of raise exposure and get some exposure to to those who aren't aware of, of how beautiful the Arab culture is. Um, yeah, break down some of the stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> break some stereotypes, exactly. Yeah, that's, I, honestly, that's how I feel about being Arab in the West. You have to definitely show what a real Arab is like and, and uh, kind of distinguish yourself from what might be out there. And and speaking of which, I, I know you're very active with the uh, Palestinian Film Festival. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the Boston Palestine Film Festival is a it's part it's like a part of a nonprofit organization here in Boston that puts on a festival every October, uh, bringing Palestinian films, filmmakers, or just films about Palestine, even if they're done by non-Palestinians. So anything, any and all films about Palestine. I found out about the Boston Palestine Film Festival when I was a freshman. Again, it was in the same the same vein of what we were discussing, of finding ways to keep that connection. I was itching to, to have a part of Palestine be present with me in Boston. So I started volunteering, actually, in uh, while I was an undergrad. So I would volunteer every October, stand at the door, take tickets, uh, hand out pamphlets, whatever it is that the team needed me to do. And then I kept showing up every year to the extent that eventually the board members reached out to me. And, you're here every year. Clearly you care about this and you are committed. 
So we'd love to have you uh, on our executive board if you have the time. And so I joined, I think, I can't remember what year, maybe 2017. I think it was the first year after graduating as a assistant program manager. So what that meant is that I would help the program manager watch most of the films that get submitted, which is many hours of watching films and put in reviews, make sure that they're about Palestine, make sure that they fit with the goals of the organization, etc. They're not polarized. They show the cultural diversity, watching the films, rating them on different metrics, and then meeting with the team to decide what goes in our program. That felt like a huge responsibility because to your point, we were just talking about how you break the stereotypes, represent, you know, what it means to be Palestinian, what it means to be Arab, represent that we're not all the same. You know, we don't look the same. We don't talk the same. We don't dress the same. Like it is different and people Mm -hmm. don't realize how much diversity there is within one region and then within the Arab world on a bigger scale. So having that power to choose what films the Boston public is able to see just felt like an enormous responsibility, but also a very exciting opportunity. So that's how I started working with the board. And then this year I switched my position. So now I'm the treasurer because my job is a bit more intense these days. So I don't have the time to dedicate (laughs) to watching as many films, but I still get to help influence the program, just not in the same capacity as before. But yeah, it's, Mm. it's a fantastic organization. I love, just love working with everybody. The board is predominantly Palestinians, but a lot of them are Palestinians that grew up here. So we also get to learn a lot from each other. I get to learn the experience of a Palestinian growing up in the diaspora, second generation, and they get to, you know, meet me, who's a Palestinian born in, or born here, but raised in Palestine all my life. So it's just a, a, it's a great experience. It's one of my favorite things that I do outside of work and one of my absolute favorite organizations in the Boston area. And I love your commitment to it. I think it shows how much you uh, value this uh, contribution and how uh, great of an opportunity it has been for for you and for people within uh, Boston who, who get to attend and see this diverse perspective of what it's like to be Arab or what it's like to be Palestinian. Definitely commending you on, on your hard work on that and, and keep up the good work. <laughs> Thank you. I think this has been an incredible discussion and I've got to know you so much better and uh, see what your experience has been like at MIT. And I've I've actually, uh, you know, we, we've both studied chemical engineering, take, took part in the Gordon Engineering, uh, the gel program, uh, been part of the ASO and, and, and done a lot of the same activities. And, and it's great to see how similar things are um, four years apart. And, and so what I'm hoping is... Um, with, with the next episode of, of the Pi series, we'll see someone who's currently a student. Uh, we'll see some people who are uh, doing their PhDs and you'll get a pretty good look at what it's like to really um, experience MIT today. And as we like to uh, conclude each episode, I, I want you to think pretty hard and, and give us uh, a little taste of what is one thing uh, that you miss about MIT? Oh boy, one thing, then I cannot, I cannot limit it to just one. <laughs> Honestly, like this is going to sound super cheesy, but it is my my first thought. And I feel like that's the, the goal of this question. Just whatever comes to mind first. Walking down the infinite corridor and just seeing so many faces, you know, and doing that like quick hello or nod. <laughs> I am so nostalgic to that feeling. It's it's incredible because, I mean, that is to say that I miss the people, right? But I don't just miss the people yeah. and hanging out and all of that. Everybody misses their friends. But just that feeling of like walking, everybody's in a rush going to a class. I don't know. It's just there's something about it that is 
that remind you that you're at MIT and that there, this is not forever. And you have these four years and you better make the best out of them because they will be great. So I think that feeling is what I miss the most. It's, it's not really a thing. It's a feeling. And I know that sounds super cheesy and I apologize. <laughs> And I think it's a feeling that honestly, anyone who's who's attended MIT probably shares. I mean, going down the infinite corridor, you, it's so repetitive. You do it every single day. And if you live on one side of campus and you need to get to the other side of campus, it can feel so, so long, even though it's probably less than a kilometer. <laughs> But it's it's such an integral part of being an MIT student, just going through and, and seeing all your friends and rushing to class through there. So I think you captured exactly one of the best parts of, of being an MIT student and one of the things that you immediately feel an absence of, right? So yeah, absolutely. thank you and so you much. And you recreate it. It's hard to recreate. I've been to the infinite since, and it's not the same. It's not the same when you're yeah. a student. And I will say I miss being in class and learning. I love working and I, I love being, I guess, a professional and not a student right now. I think that's where I need to be. But I, I deeply miss sitting in a class and just being a sponge that's absorbing information. Well, thank you so much, Adin, for joining us. And I am so excited we got to hear your story, especially in this special series, the Pi series. I hope that uh, our listeners uh, will tune in and, and hear you interview the rest of our uh, Pi candidates. Um, so hopefully we'll get a very good look at what it's like to be an MIT student in more recent years and uh, get people hyped up about coming to MIT and, and experiencing all that it has to offer. So thank you so much, Arnie. Thanks for having me.